you'll turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 2, starting with chapter 2. This week, we saw a new president take office, and his taking office will meet certain challenges. And uh, in this passage of scripture we're going to look at this morning, we see a new king taking office. David. And the challenges he meets are probably, or met, I should say, in these passages of Scripture, as recorded here, are probably much greater than the challenges even President Trump will meet in his taking office and his transition. In 2 Samuel 2, 1 through chapter 5, verse 5, we see four major challenges that David meets in his transition to becoming the king of all Israel. He starts as just the king of Judah, meeting four challenges along the way to becoming the king of all Israel. And as we look at these four challenges and how he responds to them wisely, as well as patiently and graciously, we can learn how as children of the King, children of God through Jesus, our Heavenly Father, our King, and Jesus who will one day come to earth and set up His kingdom on earth. We are heirs in that kingdom. And right now we're in a transition from the time in which He was with us on earth in His earthly ministry, teaching us disciples, teachings that for us today to be his disciples and the gospel, the good news of how to be his, become his disciples. And yet all scripture, not just the New Testament, the Old Testament as well, was given for our learning. All scripture given by the inspiration of God. And this morning we're going to look at what is it that God wants us to learn from this passage of David becoming the king. And we'll see through David's responses, through how David wisely and patiently and graciously responded to these four major challenges in his transition to becoming the king over all Israel, how we should also live our lives as the children of the king who will one day become king over all the world. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for everyone who is here this morning. Lord, we pray if anyone is not a child of the King, that they would come to know you as their Savior. That we'd come to put their faith in the finished work of of Jesus Christ and his redeeming us from our sin with his death on the cross and proving that he is God through his resurrection from the dead, proving that we one day will also rise from the dead or meet him in the air when he comes, if we are still alive, at the rapture. We thank you for all that we have to look forward to, and one day coming back to earth with Christ to reign in his millennial kingdom, and then to always forever be with our Lord and King, Jesus, our God and our Savior. We thank you for that, that we have to look forward to, that all the challenges of this life are merely temporary, and that transition to a time when when there will be 
no more such sin and pain and suffering that we experience in this world today, but that one day we'll, we'll be rewarded for our faithfulness and given new responsibilities according to how we have responded to the challenges in this life today. And I pray with every challenge that we would follow the good examples. We know that David was not a perfect man, but that he was a man after your own heart. And he gives us some good examples of how we can live our lives in this world, responding to the world and the challenges that it brings with wisdom and patience and graciousness. We thank you for this example now in your word. I pray that you would help me to make this clear this morning from your word, that everyone would be able to hear me and understand, and that you'd bless each one so that as we leave here today, we would leave with a renewed sense of how you want us to glorify you with our lives, living for you each day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first challenge that we're going to look at that David faces this morning in his transition to becoming the king over all Israel is the challenge of where to live and reign in Israel. That's his first challenge he meets because he begins at the, at the end of chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, beginning of chapter 2, he's in Ziklag, which is Philistine territory. He's not even in the nation which he has been anointed to reign as king. And we believe this anointing has, is probably about 15 years earlier, before he fought Goliath, before he killed, as it, is, as it was sung of him, 10,000s of Philistines, and uh, before he had been on the run from King Saul and had javelins thrown at him, had been hunted, had had the opportunity to kill Saul and resisted it, had fallen into Philistine hands, had joined with the Philistines at a couple of points, and yet had been preserved by God all this time to become what God had planned, what God had anointed him to be, the king of Israel. And yet now that King Saul has died, as we saw last week, and the, we saw the, the honor that David had, even towards Saul, even after Saul has now passed away. We saw the honor of the, Jebus, the, not, uh, the, the men of Jabesh Gilead, who rescued Saul's body and the, un, uh, the bodies of his sons last week. That's going to be mentioned again in this first passage and this first part of 2 Samuel 2 again this morning. But now there's the challenges of David knowing that he is to be the next king, but not everyone else accepting that. And of course, it doesn't happen all at once that David comes to the throne. And the first challenge that he will meet is where to go. Let's look at this first challenge that David wisely meets by seeking God's counsel, by seeking God's direction, and then following it, and going beyond just the plain directions God gives him, but going even further to reach out beyond the place where he is sent by God and graciously seeking to reconcile those who were under Saul's leadership and very loyal to Saul to himself. 
2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said unto him, Go up. And David said, Whither shall I go up? And he said unto him, Hebron. Unto Hebron. And so David wisely, when he's faced with a challenge, where do I go now? Where do I go from here? I know I'm to become the king, but how do I go about this? Where do I go? God says Hebron. And in verses 2 and 3, we see that David follows God's direction. He obeys. After seeking God's direction, he obeys that direction. Verse 2. So David went up thither, and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, Nabal's wife, the Carmelite. And his men that were with him did David bring up, every man with his household, and they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, that the men of Jabesh Gilead were they that buried Saul. And David sent messengers unto the men of Jabesh Gilead and said unto them, Blessed be ye of the Lord, that ye have showed this kindness unto your Lord, even unto Saul, and have buried him. And now the Lord show kindness and truth unto you. And also I will requite you this kindness, because ye have done this thing. Therefore now let your hands be strengthened, and be ye valiant, for your master Saul is dead. And also the house of Judah have anointed me king over them. So now David has followed the advice. He has followed the counsel. He has followed the direction, the command of God to go to Hebron. And he sets Hebron up as his capital. Hebron is centrally located in the southern part, close to the, uh, the edge of Israel. It's in the southern part of Judah. So he doesn't come all the way to the center of Israel. He doesn't go to, to Gibeah, where Saul had his capital. He doesn't immediately go there. But he goes to Hebron, where God directs him to go, in Judah. And Judah is the tribe that David was born into, born in Bethlehem, of the tribe of Judah. He is a, a Jew. He's of the tribe of Judah. And so the, he had also reached out to that tribe while he was, while he was in exile, while he's in Philistine territory. And he sent some of the, the loot from some of the spoils of war that he had captured from the Malachites to the princes of Judah. So he had reached out to them even while he was in exile. And now as he comes back, the leaders of Judah recognize him. He had already been anointed by Samuel as I mentioned, about, probably about 15 years earlier. And now he's anointed a second time. He'll be anointed a third time as well. But he's anointed a second time now by the leaders of Judah and recognized by Judah as the king, as the rightful king. And when, once they have done that for him, he also reaches out to the other tribes. He reaches out to some of those who are the most loyal to King Saul, that they risk their lives to protect Saul's body as it had been dishonored and displayed by the Philistines in their city. And they went 20 miles, as we mentioned last week, from their hometown of Jabesh Gilead to the Philistine city 
where Saul's body and his son's bodies had been uh, fastened to the wall there. And they took the bodies down, burned them, and buried them so they could no longer be desecrated and displayed as trophies of war as they had been. And so David commends them. He takes the initiative. He goes the second mile, not just going and, and, and sending a message saying, you know, I know you are very loyal to Saul. I demand you be very loyal to me. You know, that's not the tone that he takes. He takes a conciliary tone. He takes a commending, encouraging tone to them, one that is telling them that he recognizes them for their loyalty to Saul. And now he does ask for their support. He asks that they become valiant now that Saul is dead. And now that Judah has anointed him to be the king, he's asking for their support. That's the first challenge he meets, is where to set up his kingdom, where to go in Judah. He asks for God direction. Should he even go up to Judah? God tells him to do so. Then he asks where, and he goes to Hebron. And when he, get, and he, when he gets there, he reaches out to the rest of Israel, especially Jabesh Gilead. Now, the second challenge that David meets in his transition to becoming the king over all of Israel is that Abner, the captain of Saul's army, anoints Saul's remaining son to be the king over Israel. And so we have two kings now. David has been anointed king by the tribe of Judah. Now Abner anoints another king. And that is the next challenge that David must face. Look at verse 8 in chapter 2. But Abner, the son of Ner, captain of Saul's host, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him to Mahanaim, and made him king over Gilead, and over the Asherites, and over Jezreel, and over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, and over all Israel. And Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. So now we have a divided kingdom. Now later in Israel's history, David's grandson, Rehoboam, will rule over a divided kingdom. The northern ten tribes will separate from Judah. And for the rest of Israel's history, under the reign of David's descendants, David's descendants will only rule over Judah. And that's where David begins, is ruling only over Judah. He had some support from the other tribes. When we, if you were to look at uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 12, you would notice that he had some of the members from other tribes of Israel coming to him and telling them they were going to support him even when he was still in Philistine territory. And he had many men from all across Israel, mighty men who had gathered to him and given him his support even when he was fleeing for his life from Saul. So not everyone from all the other tribes were supporting Ishbosheth, but some of those tribes, especially the tribe of Benjamin and certain other tribes which will be named here, uh, are named here, the tribe of, uh, tribe of Asher, the tribe of Ish, Ephraim, the tribe of Benjamin, especially those tribes, but many of the other tribes, are giving their support to Ishbosheth, their official support, the support of their leaders, especially because of the leadership of Abner. Abner was Saul's uncle. So he is related to Saul's family. And of course, 
wants to see Saul's family continue to reign over Israel. It makes sense to some of, especially people from Benjamin, that tribe, that Saul's descendants should continue to reign. Of course, God made it clear to Saul and to David already that that was not the plan. That was not going to happen. But to, from a human standpoint, from a historical standpoint, they looked at Ishbosheth as the rightful heir of King Saul. He was a survivor perhaps because he had not gone to this battle. And Abner somehow had survived that great battle in which Saul and his other sons had just died, and many of the uh, army of Israel had just perished. But he had survived, and now he has a great deal of political clout. And when he anoints Saul's son, Ishbosheth, to be king, people take notice and people follow him as the, as the king. So now we have civil war that's going to ensue. This is a great challenge for David. But he's going to try the best that he can to handle it wisely, patiently, graciously. Notice that the place um, where Ishbosheth is uh, setting up his capital. It's going to actually be on the other side of the Jordan River, the, the place mentioned here, to uh, Mahanium. That's actually on the other side, the eastern side of the Jordan River. And the reason for that is, the, are, is that the Philistines had now taken control of much of the northern territory of Israel because of their great defeat that was mentioned in the last passage of 1 Samuel. The last chapter of 1 Samuel, the Philistines began to dwell in some of the cities of Israel in the north, and they had taken much of that under, to their control. And now there's going to be a battle for the leadership of Israel, and Israel is going to be watching to see who is going to be the stronger leader here. Judah has already picked its leader, King David. He is king over Judah. But many of the other tribes are now following Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. And that is a challenge David must face. Look at verse 12. We'll start in verse 11. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So that's how long it takes before the, the, his rule over all of Israel is going to be consolidated. Seven years, six months, until he will eventually not only have his competition eliminated for him, but everyone will acknowledge him as being the rightful king of all Israel. The other tribes will submit themselves to him and he will capture Jerusalem through Joab and will take Jerusalem to be his new capital. But for seven years and six months, he reigns at Hebron. Verse 12, And Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanium to Gibeon. So we're speaking now of where Saul used to have his headquarters. And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David went out and met together by the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, one on the one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. Notice that Joab has left his capital on the other side of Jordan, has come back much closer to Judah, to clo uh, where, near where 
Saul had had his headquarters during his reign. And so he's making the aggressive, and it's going to be, um, it's going to be Abner, excuse me. Abner is the general for Ishbosheth, had been the general for Saul, and Joab is the general for David, the captain of his troops. And David is basically taking a de defensive position here. Abner has made the act of aggression, bringing his troops down to this position. And now they, they meet to talk. And Abner is going to be the one that says, let the young men play, which means let them fight. And there's going to be first a contest of 12 men, basically in representative type warfare, it seems like David and Goliath were representatives from each army. But then it breaks down after that and the whole armies fight each other. Let's look at verse 13, and Joab the son of Zariah. By the way, Zariah is mentioned in 1 Chronicles 2 as, as being a sister of David. So this is the nephew of David, and since David is one of the, is the youngest son of Jesse, uh, it's very possible that Joab was actually very close to him in age, uh, being that uh, his sister was, may have been uh, quite a bit older. So, but this is a nephew of David, Joab. And again, Abner is an uncle of Saul. So the generals are relatives of the family. And Joab, the son of Zariah, verse 13, and the servants of David went out and met together by the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and play before us. And Joab said, let them arise. So Abner says, let's have a duel. Let's have a fight right here. And Joab says, let them, let them do so. He agrees. Verse 15. And there arose and went over by number 12 of Benjamin, which pertained to Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And they caught every one his fellow by the head and thrust his sword in his fellow's side so that they fell down together. Wherefore, that place was called Helkoth Hazarim, which is in Gibeon. And that statement means a field of strong men or a field of daggers. It has to do with this event. It's named after uh, the fact that these men are resolute. They're willing to die. They're stubborn. They, they fight to the death, and they all kill each other. They all die together, these 12 from each side. And so since that result is inconclusive, the entire army now goes to battle with each other and Abner's army gets beaten. He's end up, going to end up taking 360 casualties while David's men will only take 20 casualties. We'll see that li listed a little bit later. But Abner's army is going to end up in retreat. And of course, that's one of the reasons they take so many casualties is David's army led by Joab, is going to pursue them and be killing them along the way, as we see in the following verses. And there was a very sore battle that day. And Abner was beaten and the men of Israel before the servants of David. And there were three sons of Zariah there, Joab and Abishai and Azahel. And Azahel was as light of foot as a wild roe or wild deer. And Azahel pursued after Abner, and in going, he turned not to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. This is one of David's mighty men. He's listed in a couple of other passages as being one of the 30 mighty men of David. He's, he's one of the fame, men who is famous 
and especially here, he's mentioned he's famous for his swiftness, that he could pursue very quickly. He's a very fast runner, and he's a mighty man of war, but he's no match. As we're going to see in this verse, following verse, he's no match for Abner. Abner is very experienced. Um, you don't get to be the general of an army and live as long as he has lived now without being very experienced in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And so he's very experienced. And Azahel, Joab's brother, one of his two brothers, is intent. He's uh, focused on taking Abner as a trophy, whether capturing him or killing him and taking his armor. He wants Abner. Abner is the top officer in Ishbosheth's army. He's the one who actually made Ishbosheth king. So he's a kingmaker. He's a very powerful man politically and militarily. And Azahel is determined to take him down or die trying, which he does. Notice something that I find unusual. Uh, verse 20. Abner, then Abner, looked behind him and said, Art thou Azahel? And he answered, I am. And Abner said unto him, Turn thee aside to thy right hand or to thy left, and lay thee hold on one of the young men, and take thee his armor. But Azahel would not turn aside from following him. In verse 22, And Abner said again to Azahel, Turn thee aside from following me. Wherefore should I smite thee to the ground? How then should I hold up my face to Joab thy brother? And that strikes me as, as different uh, when you think of, of warfare, that uh, the enemy is giving Azahel two opportunities here, two warnings specifically. Don't keep following me. There's all kinds of other guys that you can go take their, uh, uh, take their life or take them prisoner, take their um, weapons, take their armor. Follow someone else. Don't keep following me or I'm going to have to kill you. Now, he's warning him very specifically. Um, Azahel wants Abner. He's not interested in anyone else. He's just pursuing Abner. He's determined to catch up with him. And he's too fast for Abner, but Abner is too good, too uh, skilled in fighting for Azahel, apparently. And Abner warns him specifically, doesn't want to have to kill him because he knows that will infuriate Joab, which it does. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want to have to uh, be held accountable to the general of the other army for killing his brother. And as we'll see at the end of this passage, Abner is going to make a plea to Joab because of the, the civil war. You know, uh, they're all Israelites and they're all killing one another. Although Abner himself had said, let them play. He had started this battle. But it's, it's interesting. I always, when I was growing up, I, I found this story interesting. It's because it's one of the ones you don't always hear a lot about. And I don't see Abner as, or Joab here, as the main characters of, this entire, of these entire passages. You, you could probably preach a message on either one. Uh, but... I see David as the main character here, the central character to these passages and his responses to these challenges. But here's interesting two side characters, Joab, Abner, and, and in this couple of verses, Azahel. And when I was growing up, we had a, basically a Bible comic book. It was very old. I remember the pages were falling out when I was 
very young, and, uh, but, and it was very old then, but it was set up like a comic book, and the way they portrayed these characters was interesting to me. They would portray Abner as a, um, a guy with a pretty nice-looking armor and a blue cape and a white beard and a helmet on and a spear in his hand, and uh, they, they, they went through this whole dialogue, and I always found that interesting, that uh, he's giving him a warning. He's telling him, I don't want to kill you. Don't make me kill you. Please stop following me. And uh, it just stands out as unique uh, in, in warfare for him to do that to me at the time. Uh, but uh, as a hell, he doesn't give up. He's determined to take Abner or die trying, and that's what he does. And uh, some you know, commentators mention the fact that Abner is going to, defensively, he's carrying his, uh, his spear in his hand, and the head of the spear is facing forward. And Azahel's running behind him. He's running away from Azahel. He's, you know, turning, yelling at him over his shoulder to, to, to go and get someone else. And he takes the end of his spear that apparently would be sharp enough that you could stick it in the ground and have the head not getting dulled by sticking the head in the ground because uh, that basically seems to be where the spear was found when David came to Saul's camp earlier in, in 1 Samuel and Abner had been... Uh, standing guard for, for Saul, and David took Saul's spear as a proof that he was right there next to Saul when everyone else was standing guard, including Abner, around Saul, and David could have killed Saul, but did not. So apparently you could stick the end of that spear in the ground. It was sharp enough to do that, but he doesn't turn the spear around. He doesn't take the time to turn around and actually fight as a hell. He just, as he's running, it seems, he takes his spear, the head is pointing forward, the hilt, the end of it, the butt of it is back toward Azel, and he rams it back behind him and hits Azahel below the ribs, and it goes right through his body, as we see in chapter and verse 22, 23. Howbeit he, that's refused to turn aside. Wherefore Abner, with the hinder end of the spear, smote him under the fifth rib, and the spear came out behind him, and he fell down there and died in the same place. And it came to pass that as many as came to the place where Azahel fell down and died, stood still. So it was quite the sight. It was something unusual. This was an unusual happening. And of course, Abner kept fleeing. And eventually, Abner gathers his men together. He um, is able to round up his, his men and be able to face Joab once again, gain the upper hand or gain the upper ground, gain um, a stance where they could re reassemble and reattack if needed, and then he's going to ask for, for Joab to end the battle at that point. But Joab, verse 24, also in Abishai pursued after Abner, and the sun went down when they had come, and normally that's when the battle would end. And the hill of Amah that lies upon Gaia by the way of the wilderness of Gibeon. And the children of Benjamin, that's Abner's men, gathered themselves together after Abner and, be, and became one troop and stood on the top of a hill. And Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? And I remember it was Abner who had said, Let the young men play. And Joab said, Let them rise up. But shall the sword devour forever? You know, things hadn't gone the way Abner had planned here. He was defeated. 
Shall the sword devour forever? Knowest thou not that it will be bitterness in the latter end? How long shall it be then, ere thou bid the people return from following their brethren? This is a civil war. You know, often we think of the civil war in America, brother fighting against brother in some situations. Verse 27, And Joab said, As God liveth, unless thou hadst spoken, surely then in the morning the people had gone up every one from following his brother. And remember, it's evening now, so they're going to quit following. They're not going to follow them through the night or continue to fight through the night. Verse 28, So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and pursued after Israel no more. Neither fought they any more. And Abner and his men walked all that night through the plain and passed over Jordan and went through Bithron, and they came to Mahanium. So they go back over to the other side of Jordan to their capital and regroup there. And according to this passage, there's not going to be another major battle like this one. There might be some other skirmishes. There certainly seems to be some men joining David who had been for Ishbosheth. Now that there's been this great victory, although it's a small battle in comparison to the battles we've seen with, between the Philistines and the Israelites and, the pre, and other armies previously, uh, usually we're talking thousands of men. Here we're talking just a few casualties in comparison. So Joab blew the trumpet, verse 28, and all the people stood still and pursued after Israel no more, neither fought any more. And verse 30 lists the casualties. And Joab returned from following Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, they lacked of David's servants 19 men and Azahel. So 20 casualties total for David. And uh, if, that's, if you count the 12 that died right away, that's, they're only losing eight more men, including Azahel. Verse 31, But the servants of David had smitten of Benjamin and Abner's men, so that 303 score, that's 360, Men died, and they took up Azahel and buried him in a sepulcher with his father, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron all at the break of day. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David waxed stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. And again, I think that refers more to Perhaps there's other battles going on here, but it seems to refer even more to more and more men are joining themselves to David, more and more are leaving Abner's side. So this is the first, uh, this is the second challenge David faces, is, is the challenge of the anointing of Ishbosheth by Abner. The second challenge, and, and notice that he really takes more of a defensive position, whereas David could have led the huge army out, gathered everyone together, gone and crushed that position. He seems to, it seems like Joab's force is more of a defensive force, and they went handedly in their uh, repelling the advance of Abner and his men. But it is a civil war, and civil wars are tragic. When the opportunity comes, let's look at... Uh, to end this challenge of civil war, of Ishbosheth, of being the other king and his kingdom fighting against David's kingdom. When the opportunity comes through diplomacy for David to end that, David is gracious and takes that opportunity. We see this in chapter 3. 
And unto David were sons born in Ebron. His firstborn was Ammon of Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and his second Chiliab of Abigail, the wife of Nabal the Carmelite, and the third Absalom, the son of Mecha, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. And the fourth, so notice he's taking more wives. He, had, he returned from the Philistine territory too, and now he has a couple of more. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggath. And the fifth, Sheptiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ethrium by Igla, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. So he has six sons being born here. To six different wives, which is a violation, by the way, of uh, Leviticus 17, where kings of Israel were specifically required not to increase the number of wives. But David is doing that. So David's not perfect, but he does provide some uh, good examples in these passages for us, as we already saw in chapter 2. Now here in chapter 3, verse 6, the opportunity comes for diplomacy between David and Abner. Verse 6, And it came to pass, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner made himself strong for the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, and the daughter of Ahiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Wherefore hast thou gone into my father's concubine? So it seems that verse 6 is partly related. There's a couple different interpretations of at verse 6. One would be that Abner is making himself strong for the house of Saul, meaning that if Ishbosheth passes off the scene and is no longer the king, that Abner's descendants might be, or Abner himself could perhaps become the king, because Abner, according to the accusation of, Ish, uh, of Ishbosheth, has taken one of the concubines to his own harem, which means you know, that was something that was only supposed to be the next king that did that. And so Abner is apparently setting himself up, making himself strong for the house of Saul, meaning that he is making sure he has close ties to being the king. Uh, perhaps if something were to go wrong with Ishbosheth, he would be next in line, or his children, if Ishbosheth doesn't have descendants. And Ishbosheth recognizes that and rebukes him for that. Abner, who feels like he's been very loyal to Ishbosheth, apparently, takes this as a great insult that Ishbosheth is not trusting him, that he's accusing him of wrongdoing concerning this, and apparently implying that Abner has other schemes going on here. And Abner absolutely resents that and sees it as a complete um, slap in the face from Ishbosheth uh, that he is not trusting him. Um, and, and Abner feels that he's the one solely responsible for making Ishbosheth the king. If it hadn't been for Abner, Ishbosheth wouldn't be king. So Abner, uh, look at verse 8, his, his response. Then was Abner very wroth for the words of Ishbosheth, and said, Am I a dog's head, which against Judah do show kindness this day unto the house of Saul thy father, and to his brethren, and to his friends, and have not delivered thee into the hand of David? And thou chargest me today with a fault concerning this woman? So do God to Abner, and more also, except as the Lord hath sworn to David, even so I do to him. So it seems now that Abner has tried to support the descendants of Saul to continue being king, he realizes things aren't going his way anymore. Uh, David's house is getting stronger and stronger, and Saul's getting weaker and weaker. And so Abner seems to recognize, you know what? 
it, David is chosen by God. David is promised the, the kingdom by God. There's, it's useless to fight against that. And now I'm being accused of, um, by Ishbosheth as being in this for myself, so I'm just going give, to give my support over to David. Uh, so that's what he does. So verse 9, So do God to Abner, and more also, except as the Lord has sworn to David, even so I do to him to translate the kingdom from the house of Saul, to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And he, and he that's Ishbosheth, could not answer Abner a word again, because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, Where is the, Who is the land? Saying also, Make thy league with me. And behold, my hand shall be with thee to bring about all Israel into thee. So Abner is giving his support to David. And you see here, he's not just sending these messengers to David, he sends messengers to, to Benjamin because he has a lot of influence with the tribe of Benjamin, being from the tribe of Benjamin himself, of being the general for Ishbosheth and Saul before him and the uncle of Saul. Verse 13, and said, well, I will make a league with thee, but one thing. So David's reply, David's reply is for Abner to prove his loyalty, um, and this is going to apparently please Abner that David wants his first wife back, who was the daughter of Saul. And that also legitimizes David's claim to the throne through Saul. That now he's, the, he's again, once again the son-in-law of Saul. And so looking at that from, from that perspective, um, David is retying himself to the house of Saul by demanding that his first wife, Saul's daughter, be returned to him. Saul had taken that wife and given her to another man. So David says to Abner, Thou shalt not see my face, except thou first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when thou comest to see my face. And David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Deliver me my wife, Michael, which I espoused to me for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband. So notice the the other king, Ishbosheth, agrees to this, showing that he is very much weakening here. He's seeing that resistance is futile now, and Abner is going over to David's side, so he goes ahead and, and does what David has requested. Ishbosheth does, and Abner will accompany her back to David. Even from Philatil, the son of Laish, verse 16, and her husband went with her all along the way. So she had been married to another man, um, and now she's being returned to her first husband, David by Abner through Ishbosheth. And then said Abner unto him, Go, return. And he returned. So the husband tries to follow, and Abner makes him go back, go, go home. And Abner had communication with the elders of Israel, saying, Ye sought for David in times past to be king over you. Now then, do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel out of the hand of the Philistines and out of the hand of all their enemies. And this term, my servant David, will save my people Israel. Abner is speaking of what God has promised to do through David, and he's now apparently believing that himself and supporting that um, even if perhaps it might be for his own political benefit, as he sees that he's on the losing side, he wants to be on the winning side now, and to help be an important political influence in that. 
maybe for some of his own benefit as well. But look at verse 19. And Abner also spake in the ears of Benjamin. And Abner went also to speak in the ears of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel, that seemed good to the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner is going between the leaders of Benjamin and the rest of the elders of Israel, and he's going to David, and he's being a mediator on David's behalf, and now going to David and making an agreement, making a league with him and joining his side. Verse 20, so Abner came to David in Hebron, and 20 men with him, and David made Abner and the men that were with him a feast. And that's part of a covenant routine, a tradition right there, is to, to eat a dinner and then make your agreement. Verse 21, And Abner said unto David, I will arise and go, and I will gather all Israel unto my lord the king, that they may make a league with thee, and that thou mayest reign over all that thine heart desireth. And David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. So notice David is wisely taking this opportunity for diplomacy, wisely taking opportunity to make peace and bring the rest of the tribes in to his kingdom peaceably. And he's taking that opportunity, even working through Abner, who had previously been his enemy. And he's uh, being gracious in that, not de demanding uh, revenge on Abner or the other members of Israel who have opposed him, but now giving them the opportunity to join him. So he's been patient in becoming the king. In verse 22 now, the, the third challenge, and I'll, have to, I'll go through this quickly here, but the third challenge David meets in rising to become the king is the assassination of Abner. This is a challenge to David. It's a tragedy for Abner. It's a terrible offense on the part of Joab, but it's a challenge to David. How is he going to respond to this? assassination. Look at verse 22. And behold, the servants of David and Joab came from pursuing a troop and brought in a great spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away and he was gone in peace. And when Joab and all the hosts that was with him were come, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he hath sent him away, and he is gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What hast thou done? Behold, Abner came unto thee. Why is it that thou hast sent him away, and he is quite gone? Thou knowest Abner, the son of Ner, that he came to deceive thee, and to know thy going out and thy coming in, and to know all that thou doest. Now, that doesn't seem to be the case from everything the passage indicates, but we do know that Abner is an ambitious man. He perhaps had his own... Um, benefit in mind with this agreement as well. Things were not going well for him, his support of Saul's house, so he's switching to David. But, uh, so Joab doesn't trust him. And Joab probably has his own benefit in mind as well, because now if Abner really does become responsible for bringing the rest of Israel under David's reign, well then, will Abner be the new general? Will he be above Joab? Because Joab doesn't even win his position as general over all of David's um, army for all of Israel until he captures Jerusalem, or at least he doesn't win it back until that point. So Joab perhaps sees a threat, plus, plus he is resenting the fact still that Abner killed his brother, Azahel, and he wants revenge. 
So he says, you can't trust Abner. Why'd you send him away in peace? And then without David knowing about it, and the passage is very clear to stress that because the focus again, I believe, should be here on David and his response. And when Joab was come from David, verse 26, he sent messengers after Abner, which brought him again from the well of Syrah, but David knew it not. So the author's clear that David did not know about this. Verse 27, when Abner was returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him quietly and smote him there under the fifth rib, and he died for the blood of Azahel, his brother. Ironically, though, Hebron was actually a city of refuge. uh, Joab could claim to be an avenger of blood, although Abner actually killed Azahel on the field of battle, which is different from killing someone accidentally or murdering someone. And he gave Azahel fair warnings, killed him in self-defense on the battlefield. However, Joab sees himself as a revenger of blood, but Hebron is a city of refuge. He's not, you, know, you can't take vengeance on someone who's killed uh, your relative in a city of refuge, but perhaps it's considered out of the rep because he takes him into the gate. So perhaps he takes him outside the wall, and that's why he's not executed. Joab himself is not executed for this. Uh, Or perhaps it's a weakness of David, as we see at the end of the passage. But we're going to notice that David responds as wisely as he can to this tragedy, which is that now it looks like David has had something to do with assassinating the general that was opposing him and taking vengeance on him for his support of Ishbosheth. But David is going to make it clear that he had nothing to do with it. That David is, is going to be as gracious and patient here as he can with, with, with those who were on Abner's side, those who saw Abner as a great leader for Israel. And David's going to recognize Abner for that at his funeral. But Abner is killed here. Um, He is killed by Joab, making it sound like he's going to uh, talk with him, probably invoking David's name, saying, hey, David wants you back here in Hebron. Come back here and talk to me. And then, hey, come over here in the gate and talk with me. And then he takes out his dagger and murders Abner there when Abner's not expecting it. He doesn't fight a duel or anything like that. He just uh, tricks him and kills him. And he's, he does this again later in his uh, career again. And eventually, Joab will be executed for his deeds, including this one, uh, but not right away. So verse 27, And Abner was returned to Hebrew, and Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him quietly and smote him under the fifth rib that he died for the blood of Azahel's brother. And after, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are guiltless before the Lord forever from the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the house of Joab and on his father's house, and let there not fail from the house of Joab one that hath an issue. So he puts a curse on Joab, or is it a leper that leaneth on a staff, or that falleth on a sword, and that lacketh bread? So Joab and Abishai, his brother, slew Abner, because he had slain their brother Azahel at Gibeon in, in the battle. And David said to Joab and to all the people that were with him, rend your clothes and gird, your, gird you with sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David himself followed the buyer. So he is following the body of Abner to its tomb, giving him an honor, honorable burial and uh, also making Joab himself mourn 
the death of Abner, and then giving him a eulogy and praising him for what he could praise him for, which was being a mighty man, an important prince in Israel. Verse 33, and the king lamented, verse 32, and they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept, and the king lamented over Abner and said, died Abner as a fool dieth, and there's a couple ways to take that. In the Greek, uh, the in the Greek translation of this, uh, which was completed between the Old Testament and New Testament time, the way the grammar reads is that it's a negative response that's expected, which means, no, he didn't die as a fool. Or you could also read it as, he's been fooled into his death. He was tricked into his death. Um, but he wasn't a fool is the implication, which was that he was a, that even a wise man and even the most powerful man can't, uh, is no match for the trickery and deception that Joab um, killed him with. And so that is the tragedy that David mourns, that he was a great man that wasn't able to be killed on the field of battle, but he was tricked to his death. And that was a tragedy. Um, and uh, David, he's making very clear, had nothing to do with ordering this death. Verse 35, And when all the people came to, the, to cause David to eat meat, while it was yet day, so they're asking David to eat with them. David swore, saying, So do God to me, and more also, if I taste bread or aught else, till the sun go down. So he fast till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as whatsoever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it was not of the king to slay Abner the son of Ner. And the king said unto his servants, Know ye not that there is a price that there is a prince, excuse me, and a great man fallen this day in Israel. And I am this day weak among the although anointed king. And these men, the, son of Zuri, the sons of Zuriah, speaking of Joab and his brother Abishai, be too hard for me, and the Lord shall reward the doer of evil according to his wickedness. So apparently David felt like it would cause too much problem, too many problems if he was to execute Joab and his brother as they were powerful men in his army and in, in the nation, like Abner was. They had their own support. And so he doesn't deal with them. That may be a weakness on his part, and he'll later ask Solomon to execute him when Solomon becomes king, and Solomon does. And Joab will prove by killing Absalom later in his career and killing Amasa as well, um, that he is this type of person that will take advantage and is very unscrupulous, will, 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 will do anything to further his ends, that the means justifies the ends. But David acts the opposite way, that the end does not justify the means. He had the opportunity to kill Saul and he doesn't do it. And remember in chapter one, when the messenger, the Amalekite came to him and said, hey, I killed Saul for you. He has that messenger killed because he killed the Lord's anointed. He treats these men in chapter 4 the same way. In chapter 4, you have two men. I'll uh, uh, go through this quickly here. Another challenge to David's coming to be the king is that Ishbosheth is also assassinated. Two men come to his home in the middle of the day that are his soldiers. And they pretend they're coming to get wheat from the granary, which is next to Ishbosheth's house. 
And at the time of day when it was customary to be taking a nap, they know that the king is sleeping, taking his, his noon nap, uh, Ishbosheth is, and they come into his bedroom and murder him, stab him to death, and then behead him and bring his head to David. And that's accounted for in chapter 4. And it's mentioned in chapter 4, verse 4, that the only other heir now is Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, and that he's a cripple. And so he's not someone that the children of Israel can look to as, well, this is the next king. But now it's pretty much just David that can claim the throne. But David doesn't think, he is not going to thank these men for doing that for him. Look at verse 8 of chapter 4. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth unto David in Hebron and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thine enemy, which sought thy life. And the Lord hath avenged my lord, the king, this day of Saul and of his seed. And David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the assassins, the sons of Rimmon and the Barathite, and said unto them, As the Lord liveth, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity. So he says, I have trusted in God to save me. I don't need you to be murdering to save me. God saves me. God redeems me. Has redeemed my soul out of all adversity. When one told me, verse 10, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag, who thought I would give him a reward for his tidings. How much more then, when wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed, Shall I not therefore now require his blood of your hand and take you away from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they slew them, and cut off their hands and their feet, and hanged them up over the pool of Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the sepulcher of Abner in Hebron. And so notice that he also gives a burial for Ishbosheth. So in each of these challenges, the challenge of where would David set up his, his kingdom? Where would he set up his capital? He acted wisely, patiently, graciously. He doesn't go right to the center of Israel. He asks God where he should go, and he obeys that, goes to just the southern edge of Judah. And the Judah, Judah comes to him and makes him king. And then he reaches out to those who were supporters of Saul and asks for their support. And then when he meets the, finds the challenge of civil war and Ishbosheth as a rival king from the house of Saul, he patiently waits. He doesn't gather a huge force and try to slaughter all those who oppose him, but rather he lets the defensive force fight the battle for him. And when the opportunity comes for a diplomatic end, he takes the opportunity through Abner. And we find that the way he responds to the third challenge of Abner being assassinated is he does the opposite of what some men would do in that circumstance. He mourns the death of Abner as a great tragedy. And that actually brings the sympathies and the loyalties of those who admired Abner in the house of Saul, those who are loyal to Saul, and it gives them the opportunity to give their loyalties the way they had planned to do through Abner. Abner was making all those plans for the unification of Israel, and those were all jeopardized by his assassination. But the way that David responded wisely helped to keep that unification going forward. 
And then when the assassination of Ishbosheth took place, he also responded wisely and graciously to Ishbosheth, not graciously to his assassins. He had those, them punished. So it was clear to all Israel that David was not trying to murder to, to establish his kingdom. In the same way for us today as believers, unlike some who have um, take, taken the wrong means to try to further the kingdom of, of Christ in this world in some way, whether it be in the name of, of church, many things like crusades and such were done in the past in a spirit of taking force that David does not do here. But as we look forward to Christ one day returning, and we are the heirs of his kingdom and his reign, and as we seek to further his kingdom, we should respond to the challenges this world provides with wisdom, like David did, with graciousness, the way that he reached out to the, the men of Jabesh Gilead, the way that he was willing to make an agreement with Abner, and the way that which he mourns Abner's death, as well as punishes the assassins of Ishbosheth and just treats the outgoing family uh, of Saul with great respect and graciousness at this point. And God in chapter 5 brings David and is, is, allows Israel to come and anoint him the third time and he's anointed king over all Israel. One day, right now, God is our king. Jesus is our king. We recognize him as a church, as our king. But the world has not yet given their allegiance to him. One day they will. But until then, we must respond like David, wisely, patiently, graciously. And that applies not just to the way we treat people, but every circumstance that we have to go through in this life. Um, you know, the challenge for, for my family yesterday, dealing with, with two uh, sick children uh, that, uh, and having to clean up uh, all that result of that stomach bug that they had. You know, in life, when we encounter challenges, do we respond uh, patiently, you know, wisely, you know, clean, clean the mess up, uh, do what you can to prevent, to prevent uh, more, and, uh, and just treat with graciousness and kindness and, and move forward. And David's a good example to us in those ways of how he handled these challenges. Let's try to do that with our lives as well. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly